1: life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that And Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you Ritual for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hiya Sarah to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. So the
2: bad news is gender-based violence. And while it impacts and, and, it, and it happens to every single type of identity, It absolutely, you know, spams social demographics. It is disproportionate, grossly disproportionate to women and girls.
1: This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations.
0: everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Pantsuit Politics. I'm a little bit on the struggle bus today, so if I sound funny, that's because I'm real sick, but I'm here because we've got a lot of news to cover. We're going to share an interview with Kristen Shiplin about trauma informed workplaces, and as always, we'll end the show with what's on our mind outside of politics. Before we get started, we will be in DC this Saturday. We can't wait to see many of you in person. We have tickets left for our show at the University Club with Susan Page, so check those out and there's a link in the show notes and then of course we will be wrapping up our tour in Dallas in November, so get your tickets for that as
1: well. So just to beginning with the day's news, I am sure that many of you have been following the news out of Fort Worth, Texas, where we learned that a Tatiana Jefferson was shot in her home after a neighbor called a non-emergency police line saying that he was concerned because her door was opened and from edited body cam footage that was released you can tell that the police officers were walking around the perimeter of her home saw a figure in a window and very quickly yelled put your hands up and then shot and killed her right there in her house where she apparently had been playing video games with her nephew
0: this is heartbreaking especially because the presence of a child and the loss of a life and i'm not an expert on police procedures but i just can't fathom The escalation from the door is open to firing into a home that you haven't even stepped foot into
1: yet. It's confusing to me why they even had weapons drawn when a call was placed to a non emergency number in a situation like this. And the poor neighbor who made this phone call has publicly said that he feels such a sense of responsibility and grief. And here's a person who was trying to be a good neighbor and do the right thing to keep his community safer. I'm just broken for him.
0: Yeah, for everyone involved and for the community, I'm sure there will be lots of investigations and heartache and probably protests around the area. So keep that community in our thoughts.
1: The community police department says that they are sharing this concern. They're investigating. I think this calls out, though, the importance of some kind of process that we can depend on across the United States when an officer-involved shooting happens We need a way for that to be independently investigated from the get-go because – these situations so illustrate a breakdown of trust between police and communities, and especially in light of the reporting that so many people were involved in covering up the actions surrounding Laquan McDonald's murder. We we need a different process that, that people can yeah. feel more confident in. And where police officers, too, can feel that someone with expertise will be analyzing the circumstances and doing a thorough investigation that is truly fair and just for everybody involved.
0: We also wanted to do a quick update on the impeachment inquiry. We had, I mean, I feel like blockbuster testimony is an appropriate descriptor. Do you feel like that, Beth?
1: Well, I think we're going to have lots of that coming as well. So Marie Ivanovich testified. If you'll remember, I know it's hard to keep everybody straight in what's going on here, So Marie Ivanovich, also known as Masha by the people who love her, and there are many, was our ambassador in Ukraine who was recalled after Rudy Giuliani started filling the president's ear with ideas that she was disloyal, she was impeding an investigation into the Bidens and the 2016 election. The gentlemen that we talked about last Friday who were arrested for campaign finance violations Lev Parnas and Igor Freeman had made contributions to Representative Pete Sessions, and then Pete Sessions sent a letter to Mike Pompeo suggesting Ivanovich be fired. Like, out of nowhere. Like, check.
0: Not a concern that he gets a check and then all of a sudden number one on his list.
1: This is a career State Department official with so much expertise in this part of the world, very neutral from what everyone has said about her. When President Trump was elected, I heard some sound from a leader in Ukraine over the weekend who said, you know, she just said America has elections, people get elected and we move on. And like she wasn't constantly Dragging the president, as has been described by people close to him. And so she was recalled from her assignment early. She is still a State Department employee. Congress sent her a subpoena because the State Department told her not to testify. She got her own lawyer. And here's my favorite part of this whole thing she walked right in the front door.
0: She <laughs> like, did. She did. Those not pictures try to were hide amazing.
1: <laughs> she was like, Hi, I'm here and I have some things to share with you. I loved it. I did, too. And so she shared things. And from her Mm -hmm. opening statement, which was released, you could tell that she believes she was unjustly terminated, that this came out of the blue for her, too. She thought it was unwarranted. And she's real concerned. And I think her testimony will be corroborated as we are recording right now by Fiona Hill, who is a former top aide to the National Security Council on Russia. Fiona Hill no longer works in this administration. And from all reports I read about the preparation for her testimony was. I don't know how to describe it, like ready to go, ready to say some things to Congress. Well, even Gordon Sondland,
0: who is the ambassador to the U, set to testify as well and a big supporter of Trump, a big contributor to Trump. The one on the text exchange that was like, hey, we should take this offline, (laughs) which is a little suspicious. Even the preparation I was reading about his testimony is that he is prepared to say, basically, this is what the president told me. I cannot tell you if that's true. I can only tell you he told me that I cannot speak to its truthfulness or not, which I was kind of shocked that somebody like him would Basically say, like, I'm just telling you what he told me. I'm not telling you that I knew it was true as far as the quid pro quo between the president and the president of Ukraine. So
1: interesting all around. I think people who are very transactionally minded tend not to be folks who are going to be thrown under the bus for someone else. And so Gordon Sondland, who seems to have gotten his position as ambassador to the EU because he owned a bunch of hotel chains and made a million-dollar contribution to the Trump inaugural committee through a variety of LLCs, he just doesn't seem to me like a person who's going to be ideologically so committed to Donald Trump that yep. he's going to lose everything and perjure himself in front of Congress over it.
0: Mm-hmm. So I imagine mm-hmm. that his
1: testimony will be very carefully worded, and I'm glad that he seems to be willing to testify carefully Carefully And as truthfully as possible, I mean, we'll see what happens, but it does feel like the Jenga tower is starting to sway.
0: OK, moving on to another Jenga tower. I don't think it's still standing. I think it's fully collapsed in Syria. As most of us already know, the president pledged to withdraw our troops who were allied with Kurdish forces in northern Syria to allow the way for Turkey to come in, go after those same Kurdish troops that were our allies and create a buffer zone for Syrian refugees in their own country. They wasted no time taking us up on that offer and immediately sent troops so quickly that some of our troops seem to have got caught in between the Kurdish forces and the Turkish forces. And there were, Heinous and horrendous videos of Turkish forces killing and executing Kurdish soldiers, civilians getting caught up in the crossfire, just truly, truly horrendous, heinous acts. And then late yesterday, we hear that the Kurdish forces are now reaching an agreement with the Syrian government as backed by Iran and Russia Um, To help them defend themselves against Turkish troops. So we have pushed our allies into the open arms of the Syrian government backed by Russia and Iran.
1: And in so doing, created the opportunity for hundreds of former ISIS fighters and people sympathetic to ISIS to leave the area We have ensured that the American truth withdrawal from Syria is as dangerous as possible because the Assad regime does not care about our soldiers at all getting out of his country Mm -hmm. safely. And it's really just a free for all now. You know how
0: this makes me feel (laughs) is, you know, especially as a person that came of political age. During the Iraqi invasion, it is not an understatement to say that I don't look at America's involvement across the globe militarily with rose colored glasses, quite the opposite. I'm very skeptical. Um, I have no problem seeing openly and honestly that the the problems we cause, the lives that are lost because of our interventions like I'm a a skeptic, but in this situation, it's so abundantly clear to me how often we really are holding things together, keeping the peace. And so how often our military occupations, presence, whatever you want to call it, do great good in the world. And they are. It's not simple. It's not that we're always the good guys, and that we are always out there in the world on the side of truth and justice. This situation is just as complicated as every other one. But we were keeping a tenuous peace, and when we left, chaos reigned and continues to reign. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura
1: It reminds me of how we've discussed that legislation cannot be an on and off switch. You may not like or have been in favor of the Affordable Care Act as it was drafted, Mm -hmm. but it passed and it became law. And so attempts now to just shut it down are really reckless because people depend on it because a whole landscape has developed around that as the law of the land. It's the same thing with our military, even where we have necessitated our own presence as we have in parts of the world. There's very valid criticisms of how and when and why we've deployed our troops around the globe. But the situation evolved because of that. The landscapes formed around it. People came to rely on us. We ask other people to do things to help us and to keep our troops as safe as possible and to make those missions as successful as possible. I worry not only for the Kurds who are being slaughtered and are now being forced into a situation they didn't want to be in. You know, I read where a general said this morning, we're going to have to make terrible compromises with Moscow and with Assad, and we don't want to do that. But we choose life for our people as opposed to their wholesale genocide. So I worry not only for them, but also for American troops who've been doing this work. What kind of meaning does your work have if you are pulled out and immediately you see everything that you have been spending time away from your family and putting yourself in danger for erased? I can't imagine what that must feel like. And I think it's important for us to talk about the phrase forever wars, because that's what the president and our senator, Rand Paul, have been talking about. And you're right, Sarah. I feel like our troops are doing something fundamentally different from fighting a war in situations like this. Still dangerous, still costly, still comes at great sacrifice and risk. It's difficult in terms of under what authority they do it. Is it congressional appropriations, I guess? Is that a process that we're comfortable with. I don't know how we sort out all of the different types of missions that we ask our military to engage in. And I think that's a very worthy exercise for Congress to get into so that the American people better understand when something like this happens. But it's really manipulative and disingenuous to talk about this as ending a forever war when that's really not what we were doing. The other major story that broke over the weekend is the New York Times reporting that at a pro-Trump conference hosted by American Priority at National Doral, Miami, one of Trump's resorts in Florida, a video was played that was created by a third party. American Priority said it's investigating how this came to be. It was part of like a montage of memes, apparently. And the video is... Awful! It is a spoof from the movie The Kingsman. I hated this scene in the movie. I really hated that movie because of this scene, but it depicts a very violent graphic shooting in a church and the president is depicted as the shooter. The heads of members of the congregation have been replaced with like a Black Lives Matter sign and Politico and PBS and all kinds of news outlets. And the church has a sign in front of it that says the church of fake news. Mm. I can't even describe to you how disturbing this video is. I did actually find it and watch it because I wanted to know if the way it was being described and reporting, especially from outlets that made the, I think, wise decision not to air it themselves. I wanted to see how it matched up. And I think all of the reporting has accurately summarized what is a deeply disturbing video and The White House says that the president had not seen it before, that he condemns all violence. It's just hard to know what to make of the president's personal reaction to something like this when he's taken to his Twitter feed to say so many things. But as of the time that we're recording, has not yet said on Twitter that he finds this to be troubling.
0: So I did not see the movie and I will not be watching the video. To me, any denouncement while he is simultaneously... And repeatedly and with heightened emotion, you know, saying Adam Schiff and Nancy Pelosi have committed treason, saying that retweeting ministers who say we're approaching a civil war. You know, it's not just that you have to denounce this specific video, but the refusal to take any responsibility for the environment that creates videos like this that pushes people to make violent hit lists of liberal media members and liberal members of Congress. Like, he was in his rally the other day. I really think that they hate America. I really think they want to destroy America. They are our enemies. I mean, he uses this language constantly. And then what we're all shocked when it bubbles up into a violent, visual representation of everything he says every single day on Twitter and in press conferences and at his rallies. It's just a manifestation of the ugly, violent rhetoric that he uses constantly.
1: And of the way that everyone who's not with him is against him. It's not just liberals from Congress in this. It's it's media outlets that are I think relatively unbiased. PBS and John McCain and Mitt Romney and James Comey are depicted in this video. So it's anyone who has ever dared to take issue with this president that he deems a problem for America. That sense that the executive of our country is entitled to absolute deference to me is just the entire reason that we tell ourselves we have a country, you know? Now, that's not a very accurate portrayal of our founding, but the story that we've all grown up with about our founding is we wanted to be free from an oppressive monarch. And I don't know how much more clearly this individual president can declare that that's what he wishes to be and how he is going to conduct his affairs. And that's why I'm so encouraged by the handful of people within the administration who are complying with Congress's investigation and showing even in the most obvious ways that they understand, we still have a constitution and we still have three co-equal branches. But what disturbs me so much about this video, which you're right, shouldn't be surprising to anyone. Um, it's just that We keep inching further and further away from the notion that it's the job of the press to criticize whomever sits in the Oval Office and to hold accountable whomever is in that seat and Congress, too. I just I don't understand what the end game is here for people who are still really in it with the president. That's the question I have for folks who are still supportive of the president, but who would say. I think this kind of video is gross or wrong. And I think many of them would say both of those things. Help me understand where we go from here then. Where does the distinction fall for you? I feel like this is so closely tied to everything he said in Minnesota last week at a rally that it's impossible for him to disclaim fully any responsibility here.
0: Before we move on to our interview with Kristen Shiplin and our compliments for the other side, we wanted to to give voice to a little bit of feedback we heard from our Ellen DeGeneres George W. Bush discussion. Many were upset; they felt like I was saying that Ellen should have should have you know turned him away and refused to engage with him. And I'm sorry if I gave that impression. That was definitely not what I was saying. You know, I think I would have had much less critique of Ellen had she just come out and said, I was invited into this space and I was polite and I have great issues with many of George W. Bush's policies. She could have just said that. What I, my critique is with the, oh, I'm stumbled into this fancy place and I can be pals with people who disagree with me. I felt like her characterization of what was happening and people's problem with her sitting and laughing with George W. Bush Was disingenuous. Um, Not that I thought she should have like, you know, come in with an anti-war poster or refused to sit with him or spit on him or whatever. Like I was not advocating for Ellen to turn her back and be rude. I was advocating for Ellen to be more honest in um, acknowledging people's um, critique and, and issue with her presence in that box that day.
1: People are upset with me as well because that's what (laughs) happens in conversations like this for saying that I feel like Ellen has done enough because clearly not enough work has been done for the LGBTQ community. And I did not mean to imply that the work is done. And I understand specifically that black and Brown people within that community suffer in ways that white people do not. And that much of Ellen's work has been really centered on the sort of white wealthy experience of the LGBTQ community. And so I do not mean in any way to discount other experiences or to discount the hurt and grief that people feel about her sitting with George W. Bush. I also don't mean to discount the whole aspect of the Bush legacy that centers on Iraq and the, the decision to be there and the way our country conducted itself while we were there, I think he has a deeply problematic legacy. I completely understand why some people would say that in even stronger terms. And. You know, for me, this isn't an endorsement of being George W. Bush's best friend, but it is also to say that I don't think we can influence each other when we disconnect and for Ellen and George W. Bush have no idea what their private conversations look like. I have no idea whether they're influencing each other positively or whether the whole thing is as shallow as the discussion around it has appeared. I just don't want to out of hand decide that the best job for me, Beth Silvers, in looking at this story is to give it an endorsement or a condemnation, because I think it's more complicated than that.
0: Beth, who are you complimenting this week?
1: I want to compliment Nancy Amons, who is a journalist in Nashville, Tennessee. She had the opportunity to conduct a seven-minute interview with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and she made the most of her seven minutes. And what really struck me, the entire seven minutes is worth watching. I think it's really important that people see this interview. What really struck me is how much I want to conduct myself the way she did. Because Mike Pompeo was condescending He was clearly just simmering with anger. He took personal shots at her for her questions. He told her that she had her facts wrong without saying what was wrong with them. And she was completely undeterred. She did not escalate the way that you see a lot of cable news journalists escalating with their guests right now. You know, I've watched several things on cable news lately and even meet the press. I, you know, I watched Chuck Todd interview Senator Ron Johnson a couple of weeks ago. There was no value in that time whatsoever because Senator Johnson was ridiculous and it made Chuck Todd mad and it was just two people being mad at each other instead of an actual interview. Nancy Amons did not do that. She had a list of questions she wanted to work through. She followed up on her questions and her entire demeanor did not shift throughout the course of being spoken down to in a way that I personally perceived as pretty gendered and also perhaps like him thinking who are you in Nashville Tennessee to be talking to me this way she did a fantastic job and really serves as a role model
0: well I will definitely check out that seven minutes it sounds amazing
1: so I wanted to
0: compliment Cynthia Thielen. She is a retiring Republican from the Hawaii House of Representatives. She has been in the Hawaii House of Representatives for three decades and has the distinction of being one of the most bipartisan members of the Republican minority. She has made both sides mad at different times, which I think is always the sign of a good, healthy career in politics. And everyone speaks about her time there with such admiration and such um, respect for her character and her values and her ability to bring both sides together and also to draw the line while she will she will go no further. So happy retirement to her. And it sounds like Hawaii is really losing a very valuable representative.
1: Next up, we are going to be talking about domestic violence and trauma informed workplaces in light of October being National Domestic Violence Awareness Month.
0: October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. It was started in 1981 by a National Coalition Against Domestic Violence as a day of unity to connect advocates across the country. Every 73 seconds an American is sexually assaulted, five of every 1,000 perpetrators will end up in prison.
1: So we wanted to talk with someone who is deeply involved in this work. Kristen Shrimplin is the executive director for Women Helping Women in Cincinnati. And Sarah and I sat down with her and had a conversation about gender-based violence and trauma-informed workplaces. So we want to talk a little bit about that with you today. First, here's Kristen sharing what gender-based violence means. You know, at our agency, we really focus on
2: addressing gender-based violence, And that's just an umbrella term that we use for dating violence, intimate partner violence, sexual assault, sexual harassment, and stalking. So we absolutely know this is a public health epidemic, right? If it's impacting about one out of three women in our community, it's a public health epidemic. And what we know from that is this is a workforce issue by the very nature through the public health lens, but then even really drilling into what does it look like at the workplace?
1: So, Sarah, the first time I met with Kristen, she talked with me about this trauma-informed workplaces approach, the idea that we're surrounded in so much gender-based violence, but workplaces tend to be places where survivors are re-traumatized. So if you are suffering from gender-based violence and you're showing up at work, maybe you start being late. Maybe you're hesitant to answer the phone because you're being stalked. Maybe your job performance is slipping because of the the sheer stress that the gender-based violence is placing on you. And so Kristen and Women Helping Women actually do training programs with workplaces to help people spot the signs of abuse, and then react in healthier, more supportive ways. And there are reasons for workplaces to do this. It helps retain employees when difficult talent is hard to come by. And it also just provides an atmosphere that is more caring to all employees instead of cutting someone loose who's going through something really difficult. And I think the thing that struck me when we were talking with Kristen is the sheer volume of gender-based violence that's happening.
2: So I think there's good news and bad news, right? So the bad news is gender-based violence. And while it impacts and and it it happens to every single type of identity, it absolutely, you know, spans social demographics. It is disproportionate, grossly disproportionate to women and girls. Kristen went on to say
0: that two out of three Kids are exposed to gender based violence at some point in their childhood. And this spans economic backgrounds, this spans racial backgrounds, this spans every community, every identity group that you can identify.
1: And you just have to think about what effect this has on our culture overall. We talk a lot about this whenever a mass shooting comes up. So often, early in the shooter's life, you see domestic violence. As part of their experience and it just kind of serves to reinforce to me that our culture has so many layers of trauma that everyone's walking through and getting to this experience that you have early in life in homes from the people that you are supposed to be able to trust most is one of the most important things that we could be focused on
0: Kristen also told us that we're really right now in a period of increased risk because between Halloween and Thanksgiving We usually see the greatest number of sexual assaults and other gender-based violence. And she even said that something feels different in the past two years, that both in terms of the number of survivors and the extreme nature of violence those survivors are experiencing, things seem to be escalating.
1: We know that many of you are going to hear this and want to know how you can be helpful. There are a couple of things that the National Domestic Violence Hotline recommends. It talks about Just generally respecting women in your life and in your families, and modeling that respect for the people around you, calling out people who belittle women or who joke about violence. They also recommend modeling nonviolent approaches to anger just in your family. If you get upset with your children, You know, approach it in a way that doesn't hurt or humiliate them and also be aware of resources, hotlines, places like Women Helping Women in your community where you can refer folks if you suspect that they're experiencing gender based violence.
0: So the National Domestic Violence Hotline has a list of scenarios that you can look at and see if you are experiencing gender-based violence. They range from does your partner ever insult, demean, or embarrass you with put-downs, control what you do, who you talk to, or where you go, look at you or act in ways that scare you, push you, slap you, choke you, or hit you. And there's an extensive list of sort of scenarios you can go through, and we'll put that list in the show notes.
1: We felt it was important to highlight this issue because we've spent so much time on Me Too on this podcast, and Me Too typically takes place... In workplace environments and what I really appreciate about women helping women and what Kristen is doing is saying workplaces you should not perpetrate gender-based violence and you also should be aware of the violence that's happening to your employees outside the workplace and should be a resource and a connector to good resources for your employees it makes sense for your bottom line and it's also the right thing to do And as you look at these statistics and realize how pervasive domestic violence is, it's no wonder that Me Too took off. It's no wonder that we are just still wading through so many heartbreaking instances of power being exercised sexually in our country. And so we just want to keep an eye on this You cannot talk about this conversation without talking about the importance of the Violence Against Women Act and ensuring that it is well-funded and far-reaching. It's important to think about the issues in different communities, how this issue looks in the LGBTQ community, how this issue impacts Black and brown people, how this issue looks in indigenous communities where we know that women are assaulted and murdered at astonishing rates. And so we just want to put this out there and connect you with some resources so that we all continue to think about it and don't lose sight of something that is ongoing in our culture and particularly concerning at this point in the year. Sarah, what are you thinking about outside of politics?
0: Well, let me tell you, I finished all 1,100 hours of Ken Burns' country music documentary, and I finished the 700-plus pages of Jill Lepore's These Truths, so I'm ready to collect my Ph.D. in American history now, and I just need to know where to go.
1: Good for you. And what is the most interesting thing that you took from the Ken Burns documentary?
0: Well, that's impossible. That's like asking me to choose children, um, which I do. Actually, I will choose a child I like better in that moment. I'm not a, I'm not ashamed of that. No, it is really amazing. He does, his whole team does such a brilliant job of um, showing how country music isn't just one thing. And it has always been reactions and different movements and generational influence. And so I think sort of in, in knitting together how that really does play out um, alongside the the different moments in American history. And I thought it was so beautifully done. I learned, I mean, I, I knew, listen, I'm not to brag, but my country music history was like pretty strong. Like, I know the Carter family. I know Jimmy Williams. I know all these people. I know their music. um, I know their importance. And I learned some things about their, their personal lives. Like, you know, I guess when I first learned about Hank Williams dying and Patsy Cline dying, you know, They just seemed like adults to me because I was learning about it at such a young age. And now as I'm 38, I've realized, like, they were all so young. Hank Williams was 29 years old. Patsy Cline was 30. Um, Jimmy Williams, I think, was also 30. Like, they were just so young and to have made such an artistic impact at such young ages. um, It's just so heartbreaking to think what else they could have contributed But, you know, just these sort of these moments of fate and how they influence a genre and um, the people left behind was so fascinating. And like, I'm just I'm in love with those. I'm in love with the genre. I'm in love with country music. I always have been. Um, Now, that is not to say I listen to country radio because I do not. Um, But the the ability for country music to tell a story, um, to speak to. Really intense periods in people's lives and to feel like they're talking to you. I mean, I think about how I, I feel when I listen to The High Women, and oh, uh, I just, I love it so much. I love it so much. And, and, you know, both of these things, the country music documentary and Jill Laporte's book, which I talk about incessantly, they give me such good perspective at such a scary time in American history. It's, it's, it is always comforting to me to sort of, dive into that pool and think back about how we were using terms like fake news in the 1920s literally like fake those two words put together in this very specific way we're using them now was a big thing in the 1920s and thinking about how we reacted to just world changing technologies like radio which we really have to think for country music and just all these things i think it's it's I love that sort of big, wide view of history in the world and American and particular, American history in particular. So I loved it. I just loved it. I'm trying to talk Nicholas into watching all of Ken Burns documentaries in 2020. How do you feel about this goal? I mean, whatever you and Nicholas want to do. <laughs> it's so many. There's so many. I mean, it's like. I mean, it would probably be. Close to 100 hours. Now, we've already watched the Civil War and we've already watched the Roosevelt's and now country music. But we would still do his baseball, jazz, Prohibition, National Parks, World War II and the Vietnam War. That's a lot of American history. Plus, it's so hard because Peter Wolf, the narrator's voice is so soothing. It makes me so sleepy.
1: Well, that's my problem. I just struggle with when to sit down. It's not that I'm uninterested. It's just sort of finding not... Not the sheer hours as much as the sheer hours at a time when I can engage with it in a way that I feel like honors, you know, the quality of the work that Ken Burns does. It just it's like meditating. I find it so
0: calming. Like, even if they're talking about something like super scary and intense, I just find like his the way he does it and puts it all together. Ju- and the, I'm telling you, Peter Wool's voice is ju- I mean, I would listen to that man read the phone book. I love it so much. Let us
1: know what Nicholas says about the- <laughs> if you're going to devote a hundred hours to Ken Burns. And I'm going to talk him into it. I'm going to talk him into it. I think it'd be fun. Well, I'm thinking about my sister. We went to my parents' house over the weekend in Western Kentucky and my sister and her husband came down from Chicago and I just, Enjoyed being with her so much and realized that we're kind of in a new phase because I'm 12 years older than her and it's just the two of us. So when she was born, I was used to being an only child. I sort of started carting her around like a baby doll and did that through most of my high school years. I went to college when she was five And so we really haven't been in the same physical location for most of our lives. She did go to college at Xavier in Cincinnati, so she was closer by then, but she was in college living her own life. Um, And we were having Jane when she was in college, so we were just in really different stages. The point is, she's always felt like my little sister, and while I was with her over the weekend. You know, I still love her like my little sister, but we feel so much more like we're in a similar stage of life now. She has a house and a job and, you know, the kinds of responsibilities that I have, even though they don't have kids yet. And it just feels so much more. Um, like a peer than she's ever felt to me in my life. And I just really love spending time with her. I always have, but it's just different now. And it makes me miss her so much and very much wish that we could be next door neighbors and do everything together. And um, I would love for that to be our reality Sunday because I think she is the coolest and it's comforting for someone like me. You know, I kind of have like loneliness as a default state. It's just sort of hardwired into me. I don't say that for anybody to feel sorry for me. Like we all have our stuff and it's just like a thing that I do. And I have wonderful friends, and I'm so grateful for all the people in my life. But there is nothing like somebody who is so like you and so gets you. It's a little bit weird how much we sound alike and gesture alike, even though we, we haven't spent a lot of time in the same house. But um, she is a wonderful comfort to me, and, and we just had a blast my daughters think she's amazing so just thinking a lot about her
0: well I'm super jealous I always wanted a sister it's one of my big sadnesses in life that I didn't and my mom describes her relationship with her sister much the same because she was the oldest and my aunt is the youngest so they were very very far apart in age and had nothing in common until they really reached that same level of life especially when my aunt had kids and that's when they got really really close so I'm super jealous just like I am of my mom and her aunt I wish I had a sister
1: We're going to be back with you on Friday to talk about the debate that's happening tonight. Of course, we will see you on Instagram and Twitter, as always, for the debate. My husband is out of town for this one. I know he is so sad to not get to sit next (laughs) to me while I'm tweeting up a storm. But we'll be here with our impressions on that on Friday. We're looking forward to hearing all of your impressions of that. Have a great week and keep it nuanced, y'all.
0: David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler.
1: Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at
0: pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.
1: And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.